Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. And Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his spirit. We ask now in these moments that you would lend us your spirit, that you would help us to hear your word, receive it, and to cherish it. Father, we pray that um, you would lend your spirit to the Bryant family as they are enduring tragic things. Uh, Would you remind us that life is oh, but precious moments and that you've given us the privilege to live on this earth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. His name was Frank Lloyd Wright. And Mr. Wright was a renowned American architect during the first half of the 20th century. His resume consisted of more than 1,000 designs, 532 of which were actually completed and constructed. One of his most remarkable designs came to be in 1923, which was the Imperial Hotel located in Tokyo, Japan. It was a project that took over four years to complete. But what was most fascinating about this project was its supposed impossibility. The proposed lot of land that this hotel was to be constructed on was situated in a land of earthquakes and tremors. It was going on faulty ground. But basically, this brother was trying to build a house on water. The location he was given was perceived to be unstable. It possessed a weak foundation due to the continual shifting of plate tectonics. But nonetheless, Mr. Wright pressed on. After carefully reviewing his situation, he found that eight feet below the surface of the ground lay a 60-foot bed of soft mud. So Frank came up with a brilliant idea. He said, well, why not just dig deep and float this great structure on top of the land? Now, how that works, I have no idea. We have many engineers in this room that can probably explain that better than I can. But the point of it is that building it in such a way, it would make the building sort of absorb the shock of the earthquake, of the tremors. And so after four years of work and amid criticism and skeptical onlookers, the impossible became possible. When the building was completed, soon after its completion, the day arrived where it would be tested completely. The worst earthquake in 52 years hit this hotel. But there amidst the rubble, the Imperial Hotel stood It stood because of its design and deep foundation. Both Frank and his building stood their ground through an intense situation, through criticism, through doubt, through pressure. Here in our passage, Paul, we see a community, a church. Paul writes to a people in a similar predicament. These Thessalonians are experiencing some tremors and quakes of their own. Critics, naysayers have crept in 
and have begun refuting the notion that their Jesus will actually come back. Some folks are saying that their religion is not what it seems. Jesus is not what you think. He isn't coming back. Therefore, you silly Christians are hopeless. So Paul catches wind of this and he does what he does best. He sends a letter of assurance and persuasion. Paul is writing to a church under fire. So he reminds them of of what's true. But what of the 21st century church? Is the church today under fire in this predicament? The modern world has programmed us to believe in the narrative of skepticism, where we doubt everything. Cynicism, where there's no good in the world. In other words, religion is no good, therefore it cannot be true. It's oppressive, it's manipulative. If it were true, then why isn't this place better? As each day passes, the environment around us becomes more and more hostile towards Christianity. It only reinforces the fact that we really are sojourners in a strange land. Then there are are the competing narratives fighting for your trust every day. Netflix, social media, pop culture, politics. They all are determined to get you to believe in them and what they have to offer. They promise pleasure. They promise a better life. They tell you truth is up to you. We live in an age where authenticity matters. We want to know if what we see or what we hear is actually reliable. And we evaluate that notion based upon how genuine someone is or or something is. When it comes to spiritual matters, this is always the prevailing question. Can we trust it? Is it good? Will it last? Is Jesus really who he says he is? If God is who he says he is, then why is my life the way it is? This is the sentiment of our text. Paul is dealing with issues of assurance. Folks are beginning to doubt whether or not this thing called salvation is actually going to work. Maybe for you it's the latest tragedy that's made your faith weary. Now all you can do is doubt God's goodness in your life. To question one's salvation comes in all shapes and sizes. It's the, the, the human mind, the human experience coupled with Satan's lies can lead you to doubt God philosophically. It doesn't make sense. It's impossible. This is a natural world. Things like that aren't possible. Maybe it causes you to doubt physically. Well, there's death in the world. There's terminal illnesses. There's physical abuse, emotional abuse. Maybe you doubt mentally because if there was a God, you wouldn't struggle with anxiety anymore. You wouldn't be depressed day after day. You wouldn't experience the pain and sting of betrayal and rejection. 
believing in the truth of Jesus coming back to right all wrongs and minister peace, give joy to the lowly, and spirit has become a grind in your life. Your circumstance is now louder than the truth of the gospel. Friends, what I want to suggest to you this evening is that the gospel is not just saving power. It doesn't just save us from our sin and promise a new reality and new eternity. The gospel is also sustaining power. It's the stuff that gets you through until the day when we get to stare glory square in the face. It's it's our divine assistance of sorts. For when the walls of doubt are closing in, you have something in the moment to rely on. When I was in elementary school and middle school, when we friends would come and some of my friends would make fun of me or I would make fun of some of my friends or the bully of sorts would come to my yard or come to my home or we would just, you know, be kids. And every now and then somebody would say something we didn't want to hear or something we didn't like. And we would say, talk to the hand. Talk to the hand because I don't want to hear it. I'm sure many of you have those same memories. When critics and deceivers and naysayers, haters come into your life, sometimes you just got to put up your hand and remember Jesus. Paul lays out three reminders of sorts for these moments. The first is this. God chose you. You didn't choose him. God chose you. You didn't choose him. Paul in verse 13 is provoking a side of God's nature that is essential to the Christian faith. Here you see written, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. I liken the NIV translation. Instead of first fruits, it says beginning. God is both the cause and effect of your salvation. He did this before you and I were even born. Contrary to popular theological belief, you have nothing to do with grace. Okay, that didn't seem to get your attention. I got no shouts, no talking back. All right. Let me try it another way. There is nothing noteworthy, unique, or flattering about any of us that would ever cause God to save us. Thank you. (laughs) Everything you think you have to offer amounts to nothing in God's economy of grace. Oh, but that's good news. See, God knew everything about you. He knows everything about you. He already knows what you'll do tomorrow, what you'll do 30 years from now. And even then, and even then, in spite of that, he still chose to save you. Paul says it best in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would a God do this? Because he loves you. 
He loved you before you even knew what love was. Now, this isn't puppy love or that you scratch my back, I scratch yours. It's it's unconditional love. This is the, the type of love that you just can't get rid of. It's the kind of love that says no matter the circumstance, no matter the transgression, I love you. It doesn't matter how messy, complicated, dirty you are. His love ain't going nowhere. To be chosen by God is to be fully loved by God. Friends, this is the good news because it assures us that we can't mess up what isn't ours to begin with. Your salvation isn't dependent upon you. It's all on God. You ought to be thanking Jesus every day for what he has done on your behalf. Oh, but maybe you're here this evening and you're having a little trouble identifying God's grace in your life. Maybe you need some help seeing how God does in fact hold you in the palm of his hand. You woke up this morning. You put on clothes this morning. You had food in your fridge this morning. You made it to church this evening. Excuse me, I said morning three times. This is this evening. The same is still true. You need a reason to be thankful. Here you are, worshiping the living God. Don't let the world tell you you have nothing to be thankful for. Don't, do not let yourself tell you that you have nothing to be thankful for. Every breath you take is reason to be thankful. It's easy to forget about the little things in our lives when we get so consumed and enthralled in all the things around us. We don't have enough money. We don't have the latest car. We don't have the best job. But we forget about the things that we do have. Life. Breath. A roof over our head. Clothes on our backs. The providence of God in your life is reason to be thankful. Paul starts this section off with a word of thanks because he knows firsthand what God's mercy is like. I brought my own witness. Here is a man in Paul who staked his life on persecuting the church. In the eyes of Christians during his day, he was public enemy number one. He extorted folk. He orchestrated the death of Stephen, a Christian. He exploited the poor. But God happened, and and grace met this man on a dirt road in Damascus. And now what was once the church's number one enemy is now the church's number one advocate. Paul is thanking God for their salvation because he is acutely aware that it belongs to the Lord and none can pluck you from his hand. No one can take you, take away what Jesus has done for you. The world cannot offer this redemption found in Christ. Your money cannot give you this type of security. 
Your relationships cannot promise you this. Your job cannot save you. Your education will not save you. Jesus saves you. He was the one who gave up everything so that you and I could have everything. Oh, but the gospel doesn't stop there. Secondly, the gospel does not keep us. The gospel does not keep you where you are. See, the gospel is more than a one-time moment or an event that takes place in a Christian's life. It contains a sort of transformative power. It's a power that's restless. It's contagious. It's both event in a moment and a process over time. When you come into relationship with Jesus, something radically is happening to you, whether you realize it or not. The gospel turns tragedy into triumph, ruins into beauty, bondage into freedom. This is the argument Paul is conveying in verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God in his providence, before you and I even got here, saved us for a purpose. He saved us from something, which would indicate that he's saving us to something. When Jesus sets up shop in your life, you undoubtedly become a new creation. Yes, that is true. This happens both instantly and over time. But Paul is making the argument that when God called you out of darkness... When he pulled your life out of the pit, when he saved your wicked behind, he did so with one goal in mind, for you to become just like him. Some scholars would translate the original language here to say, share in his glory rather than obtain his glory. I argue for the former. Because I believe it captures the idea that something is actually happening to us right now in these moments. In Romans 3, Paul reminds us that all of humanity has fallen short of God's glory. Everyone is left in the same sad, dark predicament. But here in verse 14, Paul says, we will obtain or share in his glory. So how does one go from falling short of glory to sharing glory? Well, I'm glad you asked. When an individual confesses Jesus as Lord, he or she believes that Jesus is the only solution to their problem. Two things become true. Instantly, they are clothed in glory and all God can see from that moment is Jesus dripping all over him. Secondly, he or she will reign in glory forever. How? If you read too fast, you may miss it. Here it is. Paul gives us the main ingredients that bring about this transformation. In verse 14, 14 through the sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. See, the, the same power that birthed Jesus, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, casted out the demons, forgives sin, raises Jesus from the dead, is the same power 
that dwells inside of you right now. That power is the Holy Spirit. It's the only means of transportation from point A to point B. It's your spiritual passport of sorts from present glory to future glory. This is what Jesus spoke of in John 16 when he told us it was to our benefit that he would leave. Why? So that our helper would come. Friends, that helper is his spirit. And it's a mighty, powerful thing we possess. God is, in fact, at work in your life because you have his spirit. One of my favorite recipes is a honey garlic chicken crock pot recipe. Very simple. You take two pale frozen pieces of chicken. You set them in a crock pot. You throw some honey in there, a little bit of garlic. You, you set the crock pot to about eight hours, and that's it. It does it all. That's it. I ain't got to do nothing else. Eight hours later, as the hours are going on, I, I smell it more and more. By the time I'm ready to eat it, what was once two pale pieces of chicken is now one of the best meals I can eat. The Holy Spirit works the same way. <laughs> it's our spiritual incubator of sorts. It's our crock pot, if you will. It, it's that thing that slowly tenderizes us over time in order to become more like Jesus. But, but notice God doesn't leave us off the hook. See, where God is sovereign in our life, he calls us to be responsible. What makes the recipe so good is all the different ingredients that are going in there. The Christian life is much the same. It's ingredients like prayer, reading your Bible, obeying it, coming to church. It's all part of the process. See, sanctification is not just a suggestion from God, but a promise from God when all these things are at play. Paul is arguing here that the gospel is incapable of keeping you where you are because of its power. You may think or feel as though that is not the case. Your circumstance may tell you that nothing's changing in my life. I still feel the same. That's not true. Thank God for his promises. You want evidence of that God and that work in your life, you, you, you know your own story. Think about where you came from. Think about where you have been. Think about the day when you decided to give your life to Christ. Think about your life now and all that has happened in between. I think it would be very difficult to say that God has not been at work in your life. Oh, and to the one who may not deem this faith to be yours. What do you have to lose? You have been teetering on the edge of despair for a long time. Jesus has been knocking at your door. You have yet to trust him.
What would happen if you took a chance? Lastly, Paul gives us our third reminder. Paul concludes with two clear commands followed by a prayer here in verses 15 and 17. First, stand firm. Secondly, hold on. Unlike the return of Jesus, excuse me, until the return of Jesus, life will inevitably be, inevitably be up and down. It will go in many directions. Death will come to loved ones. Economic lapses will happen. Familial conflict will emerge and burden us. Addictions will seem overwhelming. Pain and strife will blindside us. There will always be strange narratives and ideologies and so-called truths. There will always be haters and naysayers mocking you for the faith that you have. The list goes on. Paul is urging these Thessalonians to, to stand firm and hold to the message he preached. Christ crucified. God, give me grace. It's a message that says God came down from heaven, looked on your desperate situation, stepped into it on your behalf. It's a message who says that God who left glory took on flesh, put on his shoes and his jacket, became human, became a servant for the likes of those who spit on him, those who despised him, those who hated him. It's a message that says that I will take your sin. He humbled himself to the the point of death, death on a cross. And early Sunday morning, he rose so that his people could have hope. It's a message that Abraham hoped for when he had a vision of a heavenly, heavenly land. It's the message that Moses hoped for when he was atop that mountain, staring at glory, but he couldn't look at his face because it was too much. It's a message that the prophets preached to a people who were held captive, that had no hope. It's about a God who became human and wanted to save his people. This is the message that Paul is urging us to hold on to. There, may, there will be many messages in this world. There will be many things that come across our desks, that come in our mailbox, that come across our computer screen and phone screen. But I don't know one that can make this claim. Amen. Church, you hold on to and stand firm to the message that says Christ crucified. But Paul isn't done. He continues his argument by prefacing these commandments with one thing. You do so in community. In order for the people of God to stand firm in an unstable environment, they need folks that pray for one another. The church. The Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation, but in community. The, there, there's an old saying that goes, the house that prays together stays together. Well, in our case, the, the church that prays together stands together. 
Paul's imperatives ought to indicate to us that your life will be hard. So live it with folk that are bear it with you. Yeah, the church may not be perfect. The people that feel them may not be perfect. But I don't know of any other institution or body that can withstand centuries, millennia of anger, assault, change, adversity, abuse, slander. I could go on. It's not the building that makes the church. It's the people that fill the building. And it's that people who have stuck together when the going got tough. Because they got on their knees and they prayed for one another. They prayed for a God to come into their situation and make light of it. They prayed for a God. They prayed for a community that would rejoice with one another, that would weep with one another. That would pray for that single mother. That would pray for that grieving father. That would pray for that teenager who's struggling with anxiety, who has suicidal thoughts. It's that church that has prevailed in our history. So yes, yeah, say what you want about the church and all its bumps and bruises. But you know what hurting people do? You know what people do when they need food? You know what people do when they need hope? They come into these buildings and they praise a God who knows their situation. Friends, the Christian life cannot be lived alone. The gospel does not keep you where you are. And God chose you. So he'll see you to the end. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Send us your spirit and fill us with hope. Amen.